Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, that is the text that we are going to be landing in eventually. But a couple of caveats before we begin, a couple of qualifications. This is not a, a normal sermon along the likes of what we usually hear. Normally we have just sort of purely what are called exegetical or expository sermons where we take mostly the whole time walking through a text, drawing out the meaning that is there and preaching it to our edification. And we will certainly do that. The second portion of what it is that we'll do together will be very much exegetical and drawn from the scripture and we will take our cue from Ephesians in particular chapter five verses 18 and 19 which I'll read in a moment. But the first portion will be largely, um, I trust thoroughly biblical and Lord willing helpful but pastoral comments and remarks about singing and about what it means to sing as the gathered church. Um, my overall goal this morning is to encourage you and to encourage us as a church and as a body with this gift that we have been given called singing. Singing with you, singing in this church, singing in this room is a joy. It really is. This room is, I mean, look, that, all that extra sound, that's good for voices. It is a wonderful joy to sing in here with you, especially to stand up here and hear all your voices coming at musicians on the platform. It's wonderful. And I'm so encouraged week by week. But I want us all to be on the same page as to why the corporate singing here is so encouraging. It is one thing to, to say that it's so joyful when we sing together, isn't it wonderful? It's another thing for us all to know and be on the same page as to precisely why that is. I mean, you can hear it, but, but what exactly, exactly is happening when we sing together corporately? That's, that's what we're gonna spend our time addressing today. The concept of songs or hymns or singing and music plays a prominent role throughout scripture, a prominent role. Just some information for you, scripture contains somewhere in the neighborhood of 185 songs, not psalms, songs, 150 of which are actual psalms in the Psalter, right? Psalms 1 through 150, five books of psalms together, 150, and about 35 or so more found elsewhere in Scripture. Two other entire books besides the psalms are devoted to nothing but a song. The first is the Song of Songs, which literally means the most epic of songs, right? And we know what that's about, and I'm saying that as a way to avoid talking about what that's about. And then the other, the other book that it's entirely a song is Lamentations, which is a lament. It's a dirge in five parts. It's a lament over the destruction of Jerusalem. And there is some hope interspersed in there, but it is a lament to be sure. Often through scripture, we see music and singing in response to God's deliverance. In the scripture reading this morning um, that Leroy read for us, and, and, and that was the occasion, as you saw in the text, where the ark under David was brought back to the city of Jerusalem, and they... They got the singers together, the musicians, and they coordinated everything. They even had food. It said they had cakes of raisins. I don't know, that doesn't sound super delicious, but I'm sure it was great. They had food, they had singing. Everyone came out, David wrote this epic song, and they all sang in response to God being so merciful and kind to them to bring the ark back to the city of Jerusalem. By the way, did you notice the, the leader of, of the music there, his name was Asaph? Did, did you notice what instrument he led the music from? Did you catch that? The cymbals. The cymbals. So, John, thanks, brother. You can lead worship from the drums. I'm not going to try that at some week. I'm not going to put all this away and just set some cymbals out and come and start singing and crash away. But it says he led them all and he clashed the cymbals. That's what he did. Redemptive history is literally bookended with a song of praise in response to God's gracious deliverance of his people. 
In Exodus 15, you have what has become known as the Song of Moses, where after the children of Israel are led through the Red Sea and God utterly wipes out Egypt, right, and the the armies trailing behind them, in celebration and thankfulness of that, they sing this epic song in Exodus 15 that, as I said, has become known as the Song of Moses. The beginning of redemptive history. Fast forward, way forward, to the end of redemptive history. In Revelation 15, you see that those around the throne of God are singing something called the Song of Moses and of the Lamb. You have an updated title and a radical lyric refresh still along the same themes of God delivering his people at the beginning of redemptive history, at the end of redemptive history, bookended with a hymn to God for his gracious kindness and redemption. Revelation chapter five indicates that right now there's singing going on around the throne room of God. Now, all of that is incredible, is fascinating, but none of that is our focus for this morning. This is not going to be an attempt at an overview of all that the Bible says about, about uh, music, about song, about hymns. Not, it's not a theology of worship per se, because worship is a much broader category than, than just music and singing, right? This morning, we're going to focus on the singing of Christ's church. The singing of Christ's church. In fact, if you would like a title, The title is The Corporate Singing of Christ's Gathered Church. The Corporate Singing of Christ's Gathered Church. Now, I I do know that that title is redundancy upon redundancy, and that's with great intention. In the New Testament, as, as you probably know, the word church, ecclesia, simply means gathering. That's all it means. So to say the corporate altogether singing of Christ's gathered gathering, well, that's real redundant, right? If I had an editor, they would cross that out quite a bit and tell me to fix it. But that's with great intent because the emphasis of what we're talking about this morning is the corporate nature of the singing and worship of Christ's church when we gather as a church. It's very intentional and very specific. It's... Providential, I mean, everything is providential, but you know what I mean. It's providential that this week I'd have the privilege of addressing this after last week's message on communion because they are related. By the way, last week, on a scale of, I don't know, one to a billion, how encouraging was last week? Like, it's just so wonderful. To, to take a Sunday to focus on the Lord's table, and especially if you grew up with a, what I call like the final exam version of communion. It's this monthly thing that you have to gear up for and prepare for and hopefully pass and, and to have it by virtue of the text of scripture given back to you for what it truly is, a precious source of encouragement, comfort, and gospel assurance that we visibly partake of together to remind us of Christ's shed blood for us and that Christ is entirely for us and we are his by faith, that produces just like a revolution of joy in your life. For some of us, that's newer than for others of us. Now, singing though, how is singing related to that? Well. In my opinion, singing is related to that because a deficient view of the Lord's Supper, which I just described, and an incorrect view of the singing of Christ's corporate church often stem from the same fundamental misconception, okay? A a deficient view of the Lord's table, a final exam view, no rest in Christ, attain to this standard view of the Lord's table, and a view of singing that can sometimes make us reluctant to participate in it, often stem from the same fundamental misunderstanding, and that is this. We can incorrectly see the gathering of the church as being primarily 
about the offering of worship that we bring to the Lord. Rather than correctly seeing it as the place where together we come to receive from the Lord on the basis of his offering and to be fed and nourished by Christ himself through the means that he has appointed. Now that was quite a sentence, so I will say it again. We can incorrectly see the gathering of the local church, what we're doing right now, as primarily, first and foremost, about the offering of worship that we bring to the Lord, rather than correctly seeing it as the place where we gather to primarily receive from the Lord on the basis of his offering and to be fed and nourished through the word of Christ and the means that he's appointed. Uh, I know I know that Hebrews 13, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. I know that is in the scripture. I know Romans 12, let us uh, uh, offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is our acceptable service of worship. Absolutely. Are you saying we don't bring an offering of worship before the Lord when we gather like this? No, of course we do, but that is not primary. An illustration. This illustration has been used versions of it by many, many people, including a version of it by C.S. Lewis and a version of it by Matt Merker in his book, Corporate Worship, which I would commend to your reading. Buy it, read it once, read it twice, read it three times. It's incredibly good. Illustration goes like this. Picture a home, a loving, warm home on Christmas morning. Mom and a dad and a couple of kids, maybe six and seven years old. Some of you grew up in a home like that. I realize others of you did not at all and I wanna acknowledge that, be sensitive to that, but picture that home as I've described it, if you will. The kids, the six-year-old and the seven-year-old, present their gifts to mom and dad. They give them their gifts. Mom and dad already knew what the gifts were gonna be. Do you know why? Because they bought them. (laughs) They took them to the store. They put the money in their hands so that they could buy the gifts, right? Now, that doesn't mean that those gifts are illegitimate, like the children still gave those gifts to their parents, but only a fool would walk away and summarize that morning as Christmas morning is the time when children gives gifts to their parents. Summary statement. What? It's not that it didn't happen. It's just that that is not at all primary. Everything from the the home to the tree to the fire to the hot cocoa to the money to the presents that they took them to the store to get was all about the parents showering love upon their children. In a similar way, we gather, brothers and sisters, primarily to receive from the Lord, far and away more than we gather to give. Those, there are rather means by which Christ, through the Holy Spirit, strengthens and builds us up in the church. And frankly, there's not a lot of them. If you read through the scripture, you see the things that Christ has commanded us to do regularly when we gather. There's a relatively short list. In fact, it's short enough that the list has a name. At least since the Reformation, these have often been called the ordinary means of grace. These are the means by which Christ ordinarily nourishes and builds up his church as we gather. I can list them for you right now. It doesn't take long. The public reading of Scripture. The public praying of and in response to Scripture. The preaching of Scripture. The ordinances given in Scripture, baptism and the Lord's table. Would you like to take a guess as to what the fifth one is? Singing on the basis of Scripture to one another. Singing. These are not only things that we're commanded to do regularly when we gather, but these are gifts that Christ has given us to partake in. In our works-based way of thinking, we tend to look at fully participating in those things, fully listening to the word of God, fully engaged with the corporate praying of the saints, fully engaged with singing, fully coming to the Lord's table in trust in Christ and rest in his work alone. We tend to look at those things as the rewards for Christians who have done well 
rather than the needed comfort and assurance and strength for those who have not. We are those who have not. We are, because we we just all are. We come to do these things together because it's through them that the Lord strengthens and nourishes us. Have you, have you ever stood where you're, singing, where you're standing while we're singing, perhaps ever, and seen lyrics across the screen about all, all I have is Christ, and we give thanks, oh God, and Christ is mine forevermore, and had the thoughts go through your mind, you know, I have not thought about any of this this week. I, I have, gosh, I feel like I've barely believed that this week. I can't, I can't. I, I don't feel like I can really sing these this week. You know what, next week, I'm gonna, I'm gonna double down. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna come back, I'm gonna be ready to sing next week. I'm gonna be ready to engage with the saints. I'm gonna be re- have you ever felt that, or is it just me? I've felt that, not in recent memory, because by God's grace, my understanding of these things, but I've felt that at times with a microphone in front of my face. That's not fun. It's my desire that you, because of your understanding of what Christ has given to you, would never, never, never feel as though you had to labor under that burden. Um, I spent years of not understanding this in my life. Um, perhaps a, a well-meaning youth pastor at a camp says something while you're singing. You know, if this singing isn't coming from the overflow of your heart and life, it's all hypocrisy. And you go, oh, okay. Um, I understand that rank hypocrisy is a thing to go out and to, to literally not believe any of this, to be an enemy of Christ, then to just come to church and utterly play the part, that is one thing. But you, to tell saints that what we do when we gather is rendered utterly hypocritical if it is not the natural overflow of how awesome everything else has been going in your life, that is horribly and horrifically wrong. Horribly and horrifically wrong. And like I said, I pray that you, that we as a church would never labor under that burden in the same way that the text of Scripture has opened up what the Lord's table really means as a source of strength, assurance, and comfort, that we would see the same thing about every aspect of the gathering when we meet, including the singing. Well, that puts us in a position to talk about singing directly. We're going to have two very, very simple points this morning. Point number one, what the corporate singing of Christ gathered church is not. And I bet you can guess what the second point is going to be. <laughs> what, the, what the corporate singing of Christ gathered church is. Quite simple, what it is not and what it is. When we discuss what the corporate singing of Christ gathered church is not, that will be largely biblical and pastoral comments. And when we talk about what it is, we will land in the text of Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to get there, so let's hurry up. Here we go. What the corporate singing of Christ's gathered church is not. Number one, there are three things. It is not merely the warm-up to the main thing, which is the preaching of the word. Number one, it is not merely the warm-up to the main thing, which is the preaching of the word. There are two opposite errors. Error number one is to have a church that, let's say, has just epic music, just huge, massive 45 minutes of singing, and then a, a horrible, shrunken-down TED Talk of a sermon. That is clearly an error. Those, you, it's easy to make Facebook memes about churches like that. Some of you perhaps came from a church like that, and you realize, I'm just not being fed. This is awful, and this is why you're here. Clearly an error. But on the other side of things is the following. Look, what we know, we know we're all just here for the preaching. Look, we just, we'll sing a little bit at the beginning. It gives people a chance to get here. We'll just like, we're just kind of warm up, kind of get into things, and then we're here for the preaching. And to be clear, I am really, really here for the preaching. John, I wouldn't care if you preached for an hour every Sunday. Just go for it. And nobody else would either. I checked. Um, 
But, but, that is a sub-biblical view of what it is we do when we sing together. I have had the privilege of, of leading in this capacity for a long time, nearly 20 years now, and I have, as the years have gone by, had various versions of someone say to me, brother, thank you for the music this morning. I just, I just want you to know I'm not, I'm not here for the singing. I'm here for the preaching. And I go, well, I would like to thank you for your clarity. But with all humble and loving respect, that means you're missing on nearly half of the ministry of the word every week because singing is an aspect of the ministry of the word. If your Bibles are open to Ephesians, just a couple of page turns, look at Colossians, the parallel passage of where we will eventually land today. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14. You know what this says. Colossians 3, 14 says, above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Okay, so this is body life. This is body of Christ. This is corporate Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What's that about? That isn't about your daily Instagram-worthy time in the Lord's word at four in the morning. These believers, did they even have their own copy of Scripture? No. It was the preaching and Admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The singing was very clearly an aspect of the ministry of the Word of God in the local gathering. So therefore, it is not merely the warm-up to the main thing, which is the man of God standing in the pulpit and preaching the Word of God. It is far more important than that. Number two. What the corporate singing of Christ gathered church is not. It is not merely the warm-up in preparation for the main thing, the preaching of the word. Number two, it is not a source of unity based on shared musical preferences. Uh Uh-oh. Listen. People associate their entire identity with their musical preferences, right? Especially younger people, they do. As believers, that isn't an option for us because music is merely the vehicle that helps us to sing to the one who alone defines our identity, right? So we, all of us, myself included, have to put preferences in their place. Now, the interesting thing is is that we all we all have very strong musical preferences. We, we do. You, if you have lots of musical talent and ability, you have strong musical preferences. If you have no musical talent and ability, you still have strong musical preferences. The Lord made us that way. And that's okay. That's okay. I think we can agree that Martin Luther was known for many things, but Tact and subtlety was not two of those things. In writing the introduction to a 16th century collection of choral music, he said the following. He said that anyone who didn't appreciate the beauty of these pieces of music, quote, must be a clod hopper indeed and does not deserve to be called a human being he should, not be, he should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs, end quote. <laughs> Martin Luther. So he said, look, this music is beautiful. If you don't agree, you're, you're not, maybe not even a human being, and you should spend the rest of your days hearing nothing but pigs and donkeys. Well, that's one way to do it. <laughs> Matt Merker, again, in his very helpful book, Corporate Worship, says this. Every church has a musical home base. And that's true, by the way. The, the, the leaders, the worship leaders, and by, by that I mean the, the elders of a church have to just decide which direction a church is going to go. And then how broad that spectrum is is defined largely by a function of the, the people who are there to serve in that capacity. But he says this, there's no such thing as a stylist church. Every church is a style, a musical home base of sorts. Even if it's intentionally simple, you can't avoid it. And this means that... All half-joking aside about how our music disappoints everyone equally, 
There are some who find our music more familiar and others who really struggle with it. Simply acknowledging this reality goes a long way. That's what he's saying about his church, but it could easily be said of any church. Scripture says nothing about musical style, thankfully. Thankfully. Be encouraged that musical appreciation, sensitivity, skill, or even taste is not a prerequisite for us benefiting from fully the unity expressed in the singing of the corporate body. It's not a prerequisite. There's probably not a a single concert on earth that we would all want to buy a ticket for. Probably not. We all have individual playlists. You, you, might, you might love classical music, or you might not know the difference between a Bach and a Beethoven and a Shostakovich. Or I might say to you, hey, do you like the Joshua tree? And you say, I'm not a big fan of the desert. <laughs> we might be on totally different musical wavelengths, and then the, you and the person next to you, that is all fine. It's okay because the Lord has not called us to unify around those things. So what do we do? We attempt to lead singing and to sing together in such a way that we get out of the way sufficiently so that we can do indeed just that, sing. Because that's what the scripture does command us to do. If you're a tone-deaf yeller, that is fine. That is great. If you don't even like the act of singing, it kind of hurts, my voice is scratchy when I'm done, that's okay too because corporate singing and the benefit we're to derive from it isn't based upon those things. Third and finally, in terms of what the corporate singing of Christ Gathered Church is not, number three, it is not a time when you and I personally and privately Worship Jesus as if no one else was in the room. It is not a time when you personally and privately worship Jesus as if no one else was in the room. Man, picture, picture an, uh, an advertisement, let's say, for some sort of worship conference or worship, even a concert or something like that. There will no doubt be a person on the front doing a couple of things, what are those two things that they're going to be doing? Number one, they're gonna be raising their hands, which is great, by the way, super good. If some of you are hand raisers when we sing, that's excellent, keep doing that. Some of you are not, that's fine, totally good, that's a biblical posture. But the other thing they will be doing is, is this. Right? Eyes are closed. Now. It's okay to sing with your eyes closed. It's okay. It's fine. But what the modern conception of worship together in a church is seen to be in its ideal is this time when all the distractions, the other people around you, everything, maybe even the music just goes and it's just you and Jesus singing to him. Well... One writer said this, God's New Testament dwelling place has a congregational shape. If we hope to encounter God's presence when we come to church, we ought to expect to find him in and with one another rather than primarily in our own feelings and responses. A church service is not mainly the place for me to have a souped up, private, quiet time. It's the place for me to meet God by meeting with his spirit-filled people in his word. Corporate worship must never be anonymous. If we are God's temple, then a Christian service is, by definition, a communal affair. Unlike going to a movie where you try not to notice who is sitting next to you, at church we warmly greet one another because we share the same spirit. We hear the voices of brothers and sisters we know by name as prayers and songs reverberate around us. We see and hear them singing. Corporate worship is a priestly ministry to other believers. We are all in the choir, and the pew is the platform, end quote. It is not a time where we seek to enter into this 
thing where we feel like it's just Jesus and us in the room. We gather together and sing together for a reason. So those are some thoughts pastorally about what the corporate singing of Christ gathered church is not. Secondly, and now we'll find ourselves in Ephesians. What the corporate singing of Christ's gathered church is. What the corporate singing of Christ's gathered church is. The first of three that we will draw out from this text. Number one, it is the audible expression of the spirit-wrought unity of the body of Christ. I know I'm verbose, but it is what it is. You'll see it in the text. It is the audible expression of the spirit-wrought unity of the body of Christ. Look with me at Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. We'll read both verses together and then we'll back up. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. The corporate singing of Christ gathered church is the audible expression of the spirit-wrought unity of the body of Christ. In order to see that, um, we have to understand the theme of Ephesians. Have you ever thought it's odd that the first thing that Paul chooses to talk about when he exhorts believers to be filled with the Spirit is singing? I mean, have you ever thought that's odd? I have. Think of all the things he could have said. Therefore, be filled with the Spirit and pursue holiness. Be filled with the Spirit and love one another. Be filled with the Spirit and flee from sin. Be filled with the Spirit and sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's the first thing you wanted to say? Huh. In order to understand why that's not odd, we have to understand the theme of the book of Ephesians. So, I'm going to tell you the theme of the book of Ephesians, and then we're going to trace our steps back and look at a few other passages leading up to this to see that it's that theme. The theme of the book of Ephesians is Jew and Gentile once utterly divided the covenant people of God and the not covenant people of God now unbelievably have been entirely united in one body by the work of Christ and given the seal of the Holy Spirit. It's the utter unity of Jew and Gentile in the one body of Christ. That is the theme of Ephesians. I would like to show that to you. If you will flip just one or two page turns to the left, Let's start by looking at chapter 1, verse 13, and we're going to pick up three or four locations in Ephesians to see that theme unfold. Ephesians 1, 13, Paul says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Okay, so... So we have that the Lord is electing individuals to salvation, and when that individual comes to salvation, he is giving them the seal of the Holy Spirit as a down payment to their future eternal inheritance. Got it, Paul. Okay. Let your eyes glance over to verse 22, also of chapter 1. And he... That's God, put all things under his, that's Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. So God is electing individuals. He's saving individuals. He's giving individuals the promised Holy Spirit. But what he's doing is he's saving those individuals into a collective body, his body, the body of Christ, corporate in its emphasis. Flip the page, or at least I have to flip the page, to chapter 2. Pick it up in verse 12. He says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Oh, so he's saving individuals. He's giving them the Holy Spirit. He's bringing them into one body, the body of Christ, and now he addresses the issue that the law contained in ceremonies and ordinances that kept separate Jew and Gentile, the covenant people and not covenant people of God, has been torn down and you've been made one in Christ. We, we talk a lot about the law at this church and how Christ fulfills it. And that is a complicated and rich topic, but Christ fulfills the law in multiple ways. From a moral point of view, Christ fulfills the law in that he utterly and entirely obeyed it in our place. From a, from a punishment and sacrificial point of view, Christ fulfilled the law in that he became the sacrifice for sin that the law required. And in a, this text says, ceremonies and ordinances, those things that separated covenant people from non-covenant people, Jew from Gentile, Christ has abolished those by virtue of creating his body, the body of Christ, and bringing us all into one. And then finally, chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery, Paul said, mystery is something not fully, clearly seen in the Old Testament that has been revealed in the New. This mystery, verse 6 of chapter 3, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the theme of Ephesians. The utter, unspeakable unity of all who Christ brings into his body. And therefore, Paul says that as a consequence of being filled with the Spirit, the body of Christ ought to, must sing. This is not a concert moment type unity. This is not being in a room with people that are all moved by the same musical and thing that's happening and the singing that's happening together and you have that unity and you feel that and then you leave and it's just an experience that's gone. This is something far, far deeper than that. Brothers and sisters, when we sing together, all of us from wildly different backgrounds, singing with our voices as one is an audible expression of the unspeakable unity that the Holy Spirit has won for us, that Christ has won for us, and that is made ours by being brought into his body. That's what it is. Now, just a word on the contrast with drunkenness, okay? It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Why contrast with drunkenness? Well, um, it has been pointed out by many, many people and commentators correctly that, that there is clearly a contrast going on with the awful, idolatrous, pagan worship of the cities of uh, the area around Ephesus and the background that most of these largely Gentiles had come from, and that worship, that pagan, idolatrous, blasphemous worship involved drunkenness as just par for the course. It's how you sort of entered into the activities that they did. Clearly, there is a contrast in saying, in contrast to the utter paganism from which you came from, worship of the triune God, you, you do not enter into that by means of altering your state of consciousness. You enter in that by means of being made a part of his body and possessing the Holy Spirit. But I would like to just add one thought to that. And that is the contrast of the unity of the spirit with the, th think of, let me say it this way. Think of the utter selfishness of drunkenness. To be drunk is to alter your state of consciousness through the abuse of alcohol to have an experience that only you yourself and you are having. It is an utterly, entirely selfish act. Few people are more alone than a group of people getting drunk together. It is highly appropriate that that would be contrasted with the utter unity that flows from being filled with the Spirit and that being expressed in singing. 
The sound of those who otherwise have next to nothing in common, singing as one because they have everything in common, is the sound of Christ's church filled with Christ's spirit singing. So, singing is the audible expression of the spirit-wrought unity of the body of Christ. Two, singing is the a vital means Singing is a vital means by which we strengthen one another in the faith. It is a vital means by which we strengthen one another in the faith. Look down at verse 18 and 19 and again. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing who? One another. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We will talk about what psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs means in a moment. But consider for a moment that Paul says our first audience is sing- in singing is one another. He will talk about making melody to the Lord in the next part of the sentence. But first he says singing to one another. God does not need your voices. But your brothers and your sisters do. The people sitting next to you, in front of you and behind you, desperately do. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago when John and I were recording a bit on corporate worship, I said that, you know, there are some weeks that you come in and are thrilled to be here and can't wait to sing and can't wait to sit into the preaching of the word and other weeks when you are just bruised and beat down and bloodied from the world, your own sin, just difficulty, trials. The voices of the people around you that sing are an appointed means that God has established that you might be encouraged. I, I want to read something to you. I was, um, I was listening to this a couple of weeks ago, and it was a uh, these two guys were interviewing this gentleman who's a pastor, and uh, they were talking about corporate worship, not just singing, but, but broader than that, but this portion was about singing, and this one gentleman said something that it was just deeply moving to me, and I want to read you what he said. He said this, man, there are times when you go to church and you're in a very, very different place from those around you, He said, I had a tremendous loss in our lives a few weeks ago. My wife and I, we lost our son. And, you know, we've continued to go to church every Sunday. But you know what? He says, it's hard for me to sing. It's hard for me to sing because it's hard for me not to get emotional when I'm singing some of these songs. It's hard for me to keep it together and to sing. But you know what? There's a person, he says, behind me, beside me, and in front of me, all around me, who, as it were, with their voices, are bearing me up. And it's not like I'm not singing. I want to sing. My heart is singing. I just need to borrow the voice of the person behind me for a minute. This is the speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And in this time of my intense weakness and sorrow, other people who are in a better place are bearing me up with their voices. So thank God for the corporate nature of singing and the corporate nature of the body of Christ. What a picture that is. What a picture that is. We bear one another up by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Quickly, what are those? Psalms are literally the Psalms, as in the Psalter. Old Testament inspired poems put to music that Israel would sing at times of temple festivals and even in times in the life of the synagogue. We sing the word of God and especially the Psalms as the foundation for what we sing. It doesn't mean we necessarily sing them word for word, but we we take as our starting point scripture and we sing scripture. It's what we do. Hymns. Say, I know, wait a minute, I know what hymns are. That's an easy one. That's, that's these, it's right here. You sing these. 
I'm not a genius, but it says so on the cover. I know that's what it is. Now, of course, we know that that's not what Paul was thinking of when he wrote the word hymns. Now, we, we in our modern context, uh, often use a hymn to, in a kind of nebulous way. It's almost a song structure, a hymn as opposed to a modern song structure of verse, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. Hymns aren't really structured that way. They're just stanza, 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 stanza. And sometimes stanza, refrain, stanza, refrain, stanza, refrain. There are old, beautiful, historic hymns of the Christian church, and there are new, stellar, wonderfully great hymns being written today, one of which will close our service as we sing together, Christ, our hope in life and death. But what did Paul mean when he said hymn? Um, one writer helps us by saying this. A hymn was a term that would have been especially familiar to the Gentiles, the primary group to whom Paul wrote. In the Greek and Roman empires leading up to the time of the New Testament, hymns were sung in praise of heroes and gods. Oh. People would celebrate the military victories of great generals and exalt the false gods of mythology in hymns. That's what they would do. But as the gospel swept across the known world, the church transformed the hymn into a song in praise of the one true God. Its transformation astounded Roman culture. In 112 AD, when Pliny, a historian and governor in Bithynia, wrote to the emperor Trajan asking for advice on how to handle the rising number of Christians in the realm, he commented that Christians were observed singing, quote, a hymn to Christ as if to a god, end quote. In his mind, hymns were songs for heroes and champions, not for one shamefully crucified on a cross. When Paul spoke of singing hymns, he wasn't thinking of traditional, or reminding the church to include or revive some old songs of the past as valuable and wise as that might be, he had something far more radical in mind. By the way, I don't know if you knew this, but there are, and scholars debate about this, but there are very likely some ancient early church hymn fragments contained in the pages of Scripture itself. If you're interested in writing these down, 1 Timothy 3.16 is a gospel summary that is Many, many scholars see as a, 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 a selection from an early Christian hymn. The high Christology that we see in Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is a possibility as well. The gospel summary of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4 was almost certainly part of an early Christian creed. We don't know if it was sung or not, but... I would have sung it because I can't remember anything otherwise. So I'll put that on the list. And then most notably, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, that great passage about Christ humbling himself. It's almost certainly an aspect of an early Christian hymn. It's even been given the name the Carmen Christi, which translated means the hymn to Christ. What about spiritual songs? These are general songs, but they're set apart in that they're to help us sing the truth to one another. And that is what we seek to do, by the way, with our songs here that we sing. Do we always hit that mark? I'm sure we don't, but just so you know, that is always our effort to sing things that lets us sing truth to one another. Well, third and finally, and so just take a moment, what the corporate singing of Christ Gathered Church is, it is the audible expression of spirit-wrought unity of the body of Christ. It's the vital means by which we strengthen one another in the faith. And number three, it is an internal melody of the heart to the Lord. It is an internal melody of the heart to the Lord. Verse 19 says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That is not as in make melody to the Lord like heartily, it is in your, that your heart is the thing making the melody. So clearly this is a word picture and it's a metaphor to describe the heart orientation that we have unto the Lord as we sing. How should our hearts be towards the Lord when we sing? 
Paul does not go into that here, but I would suggest, based on what Paul has said previously in this letter about salvation being by faith and by faith alone, what we have learned throughout all the rest of Scripture, that we come before the Lord and find our acceptance in nothing that we do or are, but by faith and faith alone, that a heart that makes melody unto the Lord as we sing is one that trusts, believes, and rests in the promises that it sings. To see the words up here, the precious promises of God that we sing together, those are not challenges. Those are promises to be accepted, believed, and rested in. And I would suggest to you that that is the heart that we ought to have towards the Lord as we sing. Um, In conclusion, we... um, First of all, if you're here with us this morning and you're not a believer, I I trust that a lot of this has been odd or seem odd to you, sounded odd, but I trust that you see now that what we do when we sing this music, this is not just musical nostalgia that we engage in with one another. This This is the church of God singing to the Son of God, to the Spirit of God, and we can do that so loudly, so confidently, with so much joy because Christ has saved us. And I would just entreat you that if you are on the outside looking in, if you have not looked to Christ as your soul and only righteousness before God, that you would do that even today. For the rest of us, just one last encouraging word about how Christ himself helps us sing. Hebrews, you don't have to turn there, just listen. Chapter 2, so it's been months since we were in there, in the second chapter of Hebrews, says the following. Christ, this is said of Christ, that is why he, that is our Lord, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I, this is Christ, will tell of your name to my brothers, that's us. In the midst of your congregation, I will sing your praise. One writer puts it this way. We worship in union with Christ, and we sing in union with him too. That puts a new light on corporate worship. Who would not want to sing with Jesus? He makes our singing give pleasure to his Father. And his singing, I just love this, his singing of praise covers all the inadequacies of ours. So I'm going to invite the band to come back up. We are going to pray, and then we're going to stand, and we're going to sing corporately and with Christ three whole songs together. Lord, we bow before you. And we are so grateful that you would see fit to give us this gift of gathering as your body to hear the word preached, to fellowship with one another, and to sing these songs for the upbuilding and edification of those around us and for the honor of Christ. Father, I pray that our joy in singing would be renewed, that our love for you as we do it would be renewed, that our love for one another as we minister to one another would be renewed, and that we will be a church that continues to sing well with all of our might, knowing why it is that we do it. It's your perfect name we pray. Amen.